May I ask an exam for it next time? Enough caffeine yet? Yeah, I'm I'm on the the hard liquor. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Do you do caffeine? I mean, yep. I know you drink coffee, but do you drink a lot of it? Not a lot. I mean, in a day, two or three cups. Yes, maybe, four, maybe, maybe four nothing. or five cups. No, I don't. Sw- I'm not swishing down old bottles of Coke. <sighs> you Coke fiend. <laughs> I wish it had real Coke in it. <laughs> Allegedly, it used to. <laughs> okay. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Should we go? Yeah. Three, two, one. <laughs> Hello! Ah, and welcome to episode 30. Me. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 37. 37 of the world famous Tetchwad Zordi podcast. I am Giovanni Giorgio Morada. <laughs> and I'm John Conway. Conway. And in this thrilling episode, looks at agenda. Oh, I've lost the agenda. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> um, well, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about. And my God, how long has it been? How long has it been? It's been a long oh, time since. A month, episode- maybe. Yeah. Right, yeah, since episode 36. So. Actually, it hasn't been that long. So we're not too bad, but yeah. Right, um, it's been it's been long enough that a lot of stuff has happened. Mm-hmm. So, let's begin by now following some things up, or as we like to say around here, "F you, Darren." F you, and F you, John. Uh, first of all, to regular listeners, hello, regular listeners, hello, new listeners. First of all, two minute rule is in effect. Yep, keep an eye on the clock. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah, drinking game is in effect. Yeah. If you want to learn the rules of the drinking game, go to the, the Tetsu Wiki. Ooh. And uh, yeah, there's uh, thank you to Richard Nicklin and Keezy. Take that, Keezy. Um, uh, apolo- right, I want to apologise for my ill health because he listened to the last episode. It's like, it's disgusting. So, uh, but having said that, <laughs> I'm not that different this time round. I feel like I've had the same illness continuously for about two months now. Just can't kill it. Uh, it sounds better. Well, yeah, it's due to working yeah. too hard and stuff like that and mm. goddamn children. Mm. Um, so, right, follow-up, uh, errors, Darren's many, many errors. <laughs> okay, first of all, when I was talking about cassowaries, those of you with exceptionally good memories will remember that I accidentally called cassowaries, cassowaries, the single-wattled cassowary, whereas it's actually the double-wattled cassowary. Deliberate error, no one corrected me on that. Another deliberate error... When, when we were talking about pathologies in, uh, you know, um, fossil animals that have a weird anatomy that's probably pathological, I mentioned Labradon ferox, whereas I actually meant Labrosaurus ferox, of course, I think. <laughs> I haven't checked that, but I'm pretty sure my memory tells me. Right. Um, we love F-U-F-U. 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 Uh, what's the next? Oh, grey seals. Marcus Buller reminds me that I said something about how big grey seals are. Oh, don't see. I can't have all these messages in front of me. So I'm sorry, Marcus. I forgot. I've lost your message and forgot what your point was. But I think it was something to do with how big grey seals are. And I said that this was following on from the story 
that grey seals have recently been shown to be major predators of harbour porpoises. And I said, like, a grey seal is a bit bigger than a porpoise. Marcus says, nah, uh, uh, no, just a little bit bigger, substantially bigger. Grey seal is a really nasty big animal. Like, I think I said two metres, and he's saying, no, that's an underestimate. Let's see what Google says. Hmm. Grey seal length. Uh, they are two to three metres. Well, okay, I said two metres, but... Was three meters two i don't know there's different sources here some saying length between two and 2.5 meters others saying two to three meters whatever depends how much they're stretching depends how much they're stretching yeah yeah uh females are on us that's another one i was looking at the stuff about the comments here i think whatever you get the idea it's a substantial animal hmm. three meters long halicorus gripus one of my favorite seals love gray seals they're amazing um so seals oh right now f- i forget the context completely again we're talking about something um, having months ago or a month ago but the subject of how liberal hollywood or how left-leaning ho- hollywood is was discussed at some point yeah and um tim morris hi tim says um i would say about the movie industry as to whether it's liberal or conservative i think it tries to strike a balance (laughs) mainly with what's popular (laughs) atheism is not favorable in america in general but gay characters and themes are relatively more popular and trendy with the public despite being disliked by conservatives so thus you see films with gay characters and sympathy towards gays because even in hollywood gays are thought of as popular and trendy i mean <laughs> moneybag celebrity women have my gays in quotes and like being fag hags okay we've kind of gone off on a weird tangent here i wasn't specifically talking about uh the prevalence of homosexual people uh, in their portrayal in hollywood but yeah okay fine um so yeah so, so, <laughs> so is hollywood liberal or not thanks tim tim says maybe it is maybe it is i don't know now uh also, um, I would say yes, but stupid. <laughs> uh, comments on tezu.com. We've been trying to work out a handy way of referring to the place where the podcast is hosted online, the website. John reckons, John recommends we go with tezu.com. So at tezu.com, that's the podcast website where the podcast oh, yeah. can be listened to. <laughs> I really, really strained to find a name for that. The um, there's thanks to people that leave comments there. So not only do we have comments sent by email, not only do we have comments on Twitter, not only do we have things on Facebook and the Tezu page. Now we've got to look at comments on the podcast site tezu.com as well. Uh, thank you, Hetromiles, if that is your real name. I know it isn't. I know what his real name is. But a um, uh, lot of interesting comments there about the science, the dubious science of Interstellar, including problems with the the blight portrayed in the movie. Problems with the the fact that to take off from Earth, their craft had like giant Saturn V style boosters. But when they were on those alien planets with high gravity and stuff, they could just (laughs) take off and hover even. Uh, And apparently their spacesuits didn't have air tanks. I don't remember that. Um, Apparently calling a character Dr. Man when he's like a really evil man, a really evil... I forget what the point is there. But uh, As you said, all the crap about future of the species and this crappy planet's... I I just don't have time to read this, but check it out if you're interested. Um, Thank you, McChris, for your hilarious comment, which I really enjoyed. Again, this is on tezzo.com. I may not understand your long, rambling, exhaustive verbal phylogenetic trees. (laughs) 
<laughs> the U proto para crocosauroids is stemmed to all the other semi skim off cafe mocha latte mops. But I enjoy them just the same. And he says something interesting about gulls somewhere. Um, yes, yeah, in there somewhere. Uh, Phil Cleaver, thanks for your thoughts. On oh no maybe Phil Cleaver is the one who spoke it's talking about birds and their feet. But again, this is all follow up from last time because talking about why do girls look at their feet. Uh, and thank you Tom W for hating on Jurassic World trailer like we does like we do. The, now I think that might be everything that's technically in follow up. Okay, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> what a mess. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. So you have any follow up? Um, I did, but I've forgotten. All right, good story. Yeah, well, that's good, so, isn't it? So let's move on. Let's move on to... News from the world of Darren and John. No, read it. It says, news from the world of Darren and maybe John. Maybe John. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so maybe John. News? Um, no. Okay, good story. What have I written? I've written Cruise Meister, <laughs> Big Book, What's a Tezu, Frog's Birthdays Wiggy. <laughs> um, the cruise thing. So I mentioned probably the last episode that with my lovely wife, Tony, I went on a uh, cruise. Didn't mention the ship because I didn't think it was important, but it's probably the most important ship <laughs> in the world. <laughs> the Queen Mary too. So as part of a company that I'm not going to mention for fear of other people might steal this opportunity away from me. <laughs> 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 I went on a I went on a special cruise scientific um, thing as a guest lecturer, lecturing not to everybody on the ship, which of course would be thousands of people, but to a select group of about forty, uh, like you know, paid up, good science. I was going to say science nerds, but that, I don't want to be at all rude. You know, people, science, scientifically informed peoples, and, science um, enthusiasts, science enthusiasts, and it was great. And uh, so I was one of five speakers. And uh, it was pretty intimidating, the the other speakers, because uh, they were like world-class leading super experts in their respective fields. Um, Don Kurtz, who's an astrophysicist, uh, I believe involved in the, the Kepler missions and such. Richard Heyer, who's a leading uh, brain expert. <clears throat> Don Lincoln, who's one of the Higgs boson dis- discoverers and works at the Large Hadron Collider. Jenny Green, who's a um, supermassive black hole expert, another astrophysicist. And Antonio Varela, I think, uh, who I didn't get to talk to. But um, whatever, I was on the ship talking about dinosaur and pterosaur research. I loved it. It was great. And of course, we so we went to the Canary Islands, went to Tenerife, went to Portugal. Um, that was That was great. It was a good opportunity to talk to people about stuff I work on. Um... So yeah, means went away for a couple of weeks on a ship, which was great. And in a submarine. Oh, a submarine, yeah, that was an... Oh, yeah, because, of course, when we went to these locations, we went to, uh, you know, we did neat things on the different stops. And, uh, yeah, uh, and I saw a million, million, million different animals, um, tetrapods as well as <laughs> fish. <laughs> and uh, the... Um, Oh, so some of this stuff I'll be, you know, interesting, and I'll be following it up on uh, Tet Zoo. So, um, yeah. And who else was giving lectures on the Canary ah, Two? Now, you see, I've got this big pile of stuff next to me to remind me what I'm meant to talk about. And here I have issue, well, May 2012's issue of Laboratory News. Mm. Now, 
Why is May 2012's issue of Laboratory News famous in the world of paleontology, dinosaur science in particular? Well, because... Oh, no, that's the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start again. Right. right. Now, I was surprised to discover on the ship, there's a long story, and I'm not going to tell the whole story. You've already heard it, John. Um, well, that's um, all that matters. John's, John's already heard it. So, there we go. No, the, the, so there was a, a man lecturing, and he was kind of familiar. I didn't really think much of his lecturing style or the content of his lectures. Anyway, cut long story short, it turned out that Brian J. Ford was on the ship giving lectures to the public. And Brian J. Ford, some of you may remember, he is the guy who, a couple of years ago, um, got, in the, got huge coverage in the international media by saying that everyone had got dinosaurs wrong. And because dinosaurs are so big and because they've got big tails, they must have been fully aquatic. And he published a thing in... Laboratory News, which is neither a newspaper nor a technical journal, but it's kind of halfway in between. Um, he published an article in there saying that, we don't, that stupid dinosaur experts have got everything completely wrong. They're idiots because dinosaurs obviously were fully aquatic. And he said, just look at them. They're obviously aquatic. And that was the basics of his argument. And needless to say, there was much um, wailing and gnashing of teeth about this. And I published a response in Laboratory News saying, no, 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 no. And, and you know, said some of the reasons why this is not... Uh, valid at all anyway he was giving talks on the ship and he gave a talk on this specific hypothesis it was called bringing dinosaurs back to life and um i assume he didn't know that i was in the audience and there was no question and answer session or anything like that so i didn't get the chance to heckle him or shout out or anything uh, despite tony's prodding him prodding me that i should do so <laughs> um so yeah so so brian j ford i got to hear to him i got to hear him talk about tell us why dinosaurs spent all their lives sloshing around in water um, and, and why it made infinitely more sense than the idea that dinosaurs didn't slosh around in water and lived on land and uh, it was just terrible so, so I was inspired yes. to uh, obviously he's, he's updated things a little bit in view of um, what's happened since 2012 when he published his first article um, he claims he's writing a book on the subject and he also claimed that, that Hollywood <laughs> <laughs> wants to make a movie about his story <laughs> because cause the thing he focused on this is this is all a spoiler for a Tezu article this is all going on into a Tezu article um, but part of his talk was devoted to the fact that he was devoted to how the, the backlash the paleontologists I cannot believe I come up with this brilliant idea I know the paleontologists were really angry at me what a bunch of idiots why can't they see that I'm right that was basically his uh, raison d'etre there he was saying idiots they don't yeah. when a new theory comes along people don't accept it and say oh it's so great everything's different no they reject it and say it's rubbish and you're a fool um, and uh, that's how you know you're right yeah exactly yeah when the mainstream refuses to Take your idea seriously. You must be right in that. And then, so, so, um, and of course, he takes things like he took the recent work on Spinosaurus by Nizar Ibrahim and colleagues. He takes that as vindication for his view. Yeah, told you dinosaurs were all aquatic. I told you so. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. And also, I any. Know. Any new paper on swimming traces left by dinosaurs, of which you know, there's, there's always quite a few papers on swimming traces left by dinosaurs. This is, to those of you who don't know, this is where there's weird little scratches and stuff on sediments that aren't fully formed footprints. And the best interpretation is not that the dinosaurs were floating in the air, but they were swimming and it's just the tips of their toes uh, on the 
sediment. Um, and he says, ha ha, see, swimming dinosaurs, I told you so. Mm. That's how he talks. Um, so yeah, uh, that was quite interesting. And, and, but my God, imagine, have you been to a talk where someone is saying stuff and you object to everything they say? That's not true. No, that's what, how does that, you know, it's like every single thing they say is objectionable and you're just. Yeah. It's a bit excruciating really, isn't it? Yeah. I wonder, yeah. How he got the gig? Well, he's a he's kind of like a polymath is too kind of word, but he he kind of knows a lot about everything, and he was able to talk about bits of stuff, all kinds of. I mean, the other talks were on Facebook and um, microbiology and something, and yeah, were they simul- similarly inaccurate? Well, that's the thing, because because the uh, <laughs> the the fake because I first saw the Facebook one. I didn't watch the lecture. You can I watched it in a channel on my room because I'm that lazy. And um, <clears throat> yeah, excuse me. And um, it was like so. Some guy is talking about Facebook, and his and uh, I've said this to you before already, haven't I? Sorry, but um, the imagine if I stood up and gave a talk about Facebook and said, "Ah, oh, Facebook, wow." Well, you can talk to people and you can keep in touch with your relatives and send pictures of new babies and stuff. It's quite good, but. Uh, Facebook is claims ownership of your images, and it's known that it's alleged that that um, you know the CIA and whatever have like bought shares in it and are keeping tabs on it and collecting information on it. So it's quite bad. So Facebook, yeah, it's all right, but oh, it's quite bad. Like mm. <laughs> any idiot that uses it that knows what Facebook <laughs> is could stand up and give that. Oh, and here's a funny video of some people singing about Facebook. Yeah, and then five minutes yeah. of video. Right, that was basically the talk. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things, it's like crap on TV. You're sort of, you might watch it, but then like halfway through you think, couldn't, isn't there anything better I could be doing with my time? <laughs> this is just like, yeah, and I sort of felt that about, thought that about. This has thought. managed to tell me absolutely nothing so far. That is exact, that's exactly what I thought at the end of the Facebook thing. I I didn't, so there was nothing there at all. Um, and then I recognised the guy's name, Brian J. Ford. And then I discovered later on, well, I knew when I saw his name, I was like, oh, that's the aquatic dinosaur guy. Yeah, and then I found out he was doing a talk. So I thought, well, I kind of got to go. Um, yeah, well, so. <clears throat> Cunard, yes. you should fire his um, bottom, as we say here. Cunard should, all right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> bottom. <laughs> yeah, oh, another apology. Yeah, there was, so shoddy editing in episode 36, shoddy editing. Yep. There was an extra minute or two of silence at the end. Yeah. And, um. And there was a swear that you didn't edit out. So this time... I don't tell fun. everyone. Don't tell everyone. <laughs> be more fucking careful. <laughs> oh, God. Damn you. There was two in there, John. Make sure you get both of them. <laughs> more fucking careful. <laughs> right. Um, well, you'd, you'd gone somewhere, so you couldn't listen to it. You'd gone on a ship. Oh yeah, sorry about that. Mm. Um, yeah. So I was using I I yeah, this is very uh this is very interesting to everyone, but I was using new editing software and um it was quite a pain to export. So it took forever to export. Um I don't know why I'm being coy. I switched from GarageBand, which was driving me crazy. 
mm-hmm. since it's been updated, they removed a lot of podcasting features, just a lot of the ways it worked when you're editing, which is really irritating. And I started using Adobe Audition. And although I enjoyed editing it more in Audition, there is um, there's a bug, I think, which means that exporting it takes hours and hours and hours. So I didn't want to fix it. <laughs> Because it ties up my computer for like four hours exporting the podcast. Slacker, slacker, slacker. Yeah. Um, That's hopefully news from the world. fixed it <clears throat> by now. Mm, news from the world of John. John uses new pod- podcasting software, so you should have said yes. that. It's fascinating. Fascinating. <clears throat> People um, love that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I should uh, say I've... No, carry on, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, well, I was tr- I'm trying to I'm trying to get through this as speedily as yeah, possible, yeah, yeah. and you keep taking us off on a tangent. Um, <laughs> I just continue to work on the big book, Tetrabod's Orgy Big Book, uh, and Amniot. That's non-Amniot Tetrabod at the moment. It keeps me busy. Uh, it's coming together. Uh, if you want to s- keep an eye on how it's going with like compiling illustrations, you know, support me at Patreon. Thank you very much, and thank you to the people who do support me at Patreon. Really appreciate it. You can see how it's going there. Look, do you like my little... Look, look. Yeah, you see what nice. I did here? Look, see what I did this? Huh? Yeah. Do you know what that is? Uh, is that a... um? What are they called? It's, it's a Temna Spondyl, isn't it? It's not a Temna Spondyl, but it's it's Diplocorlus, which which is a, ne- a Nectridian. Mm. And, and there's... And tr- yeah. yeah. Not just on a whim based on trace fossils, but it's the first time it's ever been reconstructed that way, and it looks ridiculous. Mm. Okay, yeah. so you're going to describe that for our podcast listeners. No, screw them. <laughs> <laughs> they want to see it. I can buy the book. <laughs> or support me at Patreon, and you get to see it. Get to see what we're talking okay. about. So, yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, come on. They know the game. Uh-huh. What's at, what's at Tetzoo? What's at Tet Zoo ties in with frogs written in big letters, birthdays, and wiki, right? All connected. Mm-hmm. Would you like to know how they're connected? Shall I? This is a, this is a, a um, Tet Zoo podcast exclusive, okay? okay. You, won't, you won't hear this nowhere else. <laughs> so what's been on... Uh, oh, birth, okay, birthdays. So it was John's birthday it was a couple of days ago. You're much older now, right? You're like yeah, I'm like six years older than I was last yeah. time. And uh, so, happy birthday to you! It's the seventh of January, twenty fifteen, right now. And yesterday was our good buddy Cameron McCormick's birthday. So, belated happy birthday, Cameron! Now, Cameron is the major domo, or technically, he is the grand vizier, I think, of the Tetsu Wiki project, which is why. He has to be mentioned. Okay, wiki.tetzu.com. <clears throat> um, I love this site. It's, it's just looking so good. It's got a whole new site. This, this is not part of follow-up. I'm not meant to be talking about this right now. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm doing this because I wanted to get some biographical information on, on Cameron. Where is the... Um, there's a bit about characters involved. What's it called? Um, oh, my God. God. Citizens, right, miscellany. Citizens of the Tetsu Empire. Uh, Darren is Emperor. John is Grand Vizier. Memo Kozman, our millionaire buddy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an in-joke because Memo was just on the Turkish version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he's so clever, he's definitely won a million. 
a million. Uh, what currencies do they use in Turkey? You've been to Turkey. Lira. Lira. Mm. Okay, Cameron McCormick. I don't McCormick. know how much a million is worth. Okay, well, you can be a, so you, mm. Lord of the Archives and Records and Lord Geekington is Cameron McCormick. Um, okay, I'm not going to read out the whole biography because there's a big fat paragraph there. But there you go. Yeah, and now, now, so that's human birthdays. Did you know Tetrazoology has its birthday on January 21st? We're really close to the Tetrapod Zoology birthday, right? And every year on the birthday, one thing I do, look back at the previous year, and I tot up all of the um, articles according to, like, which group of organisms, like, group them into, you know, groups of, how it was, which groups of animals have been covered. <coughs> Excuse me. And I did that the other day, and um, I was shocked to discover that amphibians, or lysamphibians, whatever you prefer, extant amphibians, had scant coverage during the year. I think there were two articles <laughs> devoted to them during the whole of 2014. So I was like, oh no! <laughs> Out of must kilter. have taxonomic balance! <laughs> must have balance! So let's look at what's happened on Tetrabodzoldi since December. Okay, so the 300th article appeared in, on December 17th. The 300th article. So I thought, I've got to do something weird there. So the weird thing I did is... You know what I did? I, I wrote about fish. No, oh yes, of course, fish. about the fish. Yes. yes, which of course is all because of Tetsu Big Book, the Big Book. Mm. And then Christmas time, I thought I'd do something Christmasy. So I wrote about robins because in this part of the world, I'm living in England. In England, the UK in general, um, robins are associated with Christmas. So to, we think of the robin as a Christmassy bird, which is not true elsewhere in the world, right? But. <clears throat> Well, they only exist over Christmas here. Yeah. Pop into existence. (laughs) Exactly. And this is the proper robin, Erythicus rubicula. It's like a member of... It's a chat uh, related to nightingales and uh, blue throats and things like that. It's not the American robin or which is a thrush or any of the other things called robins around the world. Anyway, after the robins one, after Christmas, there's an article on the 28th about frogs. There's an article on December 30th about frogs. There's an article on January the 2nd about frogs. There's an article on January the 3rd about frogs. And there's an article on January the 5th about frogs. So there's a theme going here. And uh, for those of you who are wondering what's going on, it's, it's the, the strivening for taxonomic <laughs> balance. Strivening a word? Yeah, Should the strivening. The striving. That's a, great, that's a great film. Yep. So there you go. That's the, so that ties what's at Tetsu, frogs, birthdays, and wiki all together. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> Good. Now then. News from the world of news. News from the world of news. Now, it being like we've already said about a month since the last time we did anything, there's a huge list of awesome things that, that sort of are on my mind that I'd like to talk about. But just it's just not going to happen because if I start talking about those things, it's going to be like, mm. well, the two-minute rule is going to be shot to hell. Yeah. And... <laughs> And you are going to drone on for like 40 minutes. So, <laughs> right, so we're going to play a game here. Look at the clock. Two-minute rule. Let's see if I can not talk for more than two minutes on each of these papers. See, I'm serious. Let's, go, let's do this. Okay. You ready? I don't have a, like, I don't have a second hand on my well, clock. Though. You see that computer in front of you? Yeah, it doesn't have a second like thing. Well, you see the, 
you see the, the the numbers at the end those are called minutes right and when yeah. they change they change that you get one number and then yeah. A minute later, it changes to another number. That's right, so how it I'll just works. stop you talking until I see it change, and then you can start talking. So we'll just sit here in silence for well, up to 59 <laughs> seconds no! while I wait for you right, to okay. start. You see my problem now, Darren. You've, okay, have you heard of a thing called Google, right? Actually, uh, there's one in the Skype thing here. Oh, fuck. Right, right, go. Right, First okay. thing. First thing, uh, Rupay and colleagues have published in AM and H and Overtar to use a paper on a new Microraptor specimen. This is not a new specimen to those of you that know Microraptor before. It's the really awesome squished flat one with the like distinct detailed tail anatomy, you know, where there's the two central streamers and stuff like that. I don't have anything particularly special to say about the paper. I'm just saying that it's nice that there is a nice description of an articulated microbial specimen because we all know of hundreds of them that are kicking around in museums very few of which have been properly described so that that'll do that's that's all i wanted to say on that see that didn't take two minutes did it more like 20 seconds there you go great so that's what we want right so bird phylogeny papers again i don't have the papers in front of me don't know the names of the authors but there's been a glut like about i don't know like seven papers have come out in the last month on the total phylogeny of living birds. So, and they all pretty much agree on the shape of the tree. So we actually do finally have, you know, after decades of people saying, oh, we're getting there, we're getting there, you know, p- the tree's coming together slowly. That didn't really happen until, um, well, uh, Hackett and colleagues and Harshman and colleagues and, and other groups, they published these like big phylogenies of g- genetic phylogenies of, of birds and you know lots of surprises some aspects of the tree are weird basically there is like a water bird group that splits early on there's one that includes like cuckoos and 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 um, cranes and stuff which is close to the water bird group then there's like a big group of mostly land birds they in that there's like this afroavian clade that includes like lots of uh, hawks uh, well hawks and um, <clears throat> owls and things and then there's and that's close to this group that includes parrots and passerines and falcons and I, I mean I you know if I I can't talk about the details of the, the tree but 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 a lot of trees a lot of papers even recently published bird phylogeny is coming together you know right so again without going into the details that'll have to do mm. right one next minute. one Rough yay wow. what a pro okay so that but that was messy sorry about that I haven't rehearsed this all I've written down is, for example, this one, Koshkovitz, Kosh, Kosh, Koshowitz et al. versus Meyer on feathers. So um, Koshowitz and colleagues published a paper, I believe in science, where I haven't read this paper, where they said that maybe the driving um, force behind the development of complex feathers was used to the feathers in display. I don't think that was the whole point of their paper. I think the paper was on some other aspect of feather evolution, but I think they threw that in there. They said that maybe complex feathers uh, evolved under selection pressures associated to use in display, which of course is not a novel hypothesis. It's been around for the whole history of, well, evolutionary thought. <clears throat> the, the reason that I'm talking about here is because Gerald Meyer, well known expert on early birds, on bird evolution, uh, he published a paper uh, he published a letter in science where he took issue with this and he says and he said nah and he came up with a whole load of criticisms as to why this is unlikely to be true his article is accompanied by probably the worst reconstruction of cordipteryx ever published which because <laughs> like some piece of crap they took from photo stock or you know whatever one of those like online libraries just yeah. terrible 
clearly done by clearly done by someone who'd seen the name Cordybrix and made the animal up from there. I'm not kidding; it's that bad. And Maya said that no, no, that this idea of um, evolution through uh, to do with um, using display is unlikely to be correct because why would there be feathers in complex feathers in females? And we don't see the display feathers being used that widely across birds. And I just want to say that his claims are actually really dubious or even totally incorrect. Uh, but again, to you know, address them in detail, you'd have to write like a whole letter to science, and I'm not about to do that. It'd be a waste of time. I might address it on Tetsu. Again, I could say more about that, but that'll do. Um, right, Aquilops. All I want to say is Aquilops, little horned dinosaur, North American, described by Andy Farkey and our buddy Matt Wadel and other people. Brilliant illustration by um, um, Brian Eng. Brian Eng did the fantastic life restoration of Aquilops. And Aquilops, those of you interested in ornithischian dinosaurs, really cool. It's, uh, you know, changes some of the things, some of the previous models about the distribution, biogeography, and dispersal of horned dinosaurs, because it's an early one in North America. <clears throat> Papers in PLOS One, open access. That'll do. All right. Two more to go. Dwarf Elephant. Yep. Dwarf Elephant, this one, I do have the paper in front of me, as you know, published by Sherman De Silva and colleagues, Morphometrics of a Wild Asian Elephant Exhibiting Disproportionate Dwarfism. Um, it's in. It's a preprint in PeerJ at the moment, so open access again. This is a study documenting the discovery of a dwarf male Asian elephant found in the wild. Um, he was a weird animal. He is a weird animal. Shoulder height just under two meters, body length just over two meters. Unusually elongated skull for an Asian elephant. Um, so they're basically saying, you know, hey, well, first case of like uh, what seems to be naturally occurring dwarfism in a wild animal. Because all other cases of dwarfism are, are in like captive animals or they're, you know, involve hybrids or whatever. So that's cool. And timely, because I'm still reading. Um, Matt Salisbury's Pygmy Elephants book I can't remember if he mentions that or not I'm pretty sure he does Um, sorry getting in the habit of muting the microphone when I have to do something Um, uh, (laughs) finally uh, finally the last paper I got rid of no polar bear in Yeti DNA so we covered the um, Sykes et al study from last year where Brian Sykes traveled the world collecting samples alleged to be from Bigfoot, Almas or Almasti and Yeti and a few other mystery hominids and then analyzed them and then said that, well, published a paper, I think in Proceedings of the Royal Society or Bulgy Letters, I can't remember now, I don't have it in front of me. Bulgy Letters is like short version of what used to be Proceedings B. And, um, showed that all of these uh, bits of evidence were, uh, you know, could be identified as belonging to known animals or were indeterminate. And he said that that the paper says that um, they were surprised to discover that in the Himalayan alleged Yeti sample, um, there was traces of polar bear ancestry, indicating that there was a weird population of bears there. And in the TV program, they jumped on the idea that, oh, maybe this is some weird-looking, like, hybrid mutant bear that um <clears throat> looks yes, a bit polar bearish yeah it looks a yeah. bit grizzly bearish or brown bearish um well this new paper by ross barnett and another author whose name i can't remember apologies to them because they don't have it in front of me 
they uh, analysed the Sykes sample and they found that there was a critical error and that this claim of polar bear DNA in the uh, Himalayan sample was erroneous and they were just regular style brown bears. Uh, so, so the Sykes et al. study is erroneous in one aspect. Doesn't mean that all oh, they screwed up, and actually, all those DNA samples are from Yetis after all. Uh, I haven't heard anyone say that, but <laughs> um, uh, no, that's not what it means. But, but we should also say, and I think we said, so this a disappointing last time, result becomes even more disappointing. <laughs> yes, those ordinary <laughs> bears, ordinary bears are even more ordinary than you thought <laughs> yeah. already. But again, to reiterate a point, I think we made last time anyway. Um, finding polar bear DNA in a population of brown bears doesn't mean that it's some weird new kind of bear. It just means that you've got evidence of an ancient hybridization event in the same way that Western European people have got Neanderthal DNA in them. I said all this last time. I'm repeating myself. Yeah. So that was within two minutes, right? Uh, yes. <sighs> what a no. pro. No, ah. that, last, that last one, probably because I interjected, was one minute, 30 se- two minutes, oh. 30 seconds. John! Yeah. Now, I also want to say... Right, this should have been in FU, I think. I don't know. I don't know where it should go. It doesn't where it should go. Don't know where it should go. But this this is FU because it follows on from from Tetchpod Zoology. No, Tetchpod Zoology podcast episode twenty three. Yeah. Now, I spent some time talking about a documentary called Shooting Bigfoot: America's Monster Hunters or something like that. Uh, that stars Tom Biscardi and Rick Dyer and a bunch of other people. And, um, and I said some fairly negative things about this documentary. Yes. <laughs> now, without mentioning names here, don't worry, but without mentioning names, I just want to say that John and I actually hung out <laughs> over New Year with um, someone in, who was quite deeply involved in this documentary, which was quite a, you know, it's funny, I don't want to say small world, but it basically was small world syndrome, wasn't it? It just kind of happened to come up in conversation. and Wow. What are the odds? Yes. So, um, so we've got, got <laughs> lots of like, valuable insider information on the Shooting Bigfoot documentary, which is discussed in episode 23. And if you are interested in what we said about it, go back and listen to episode 23. So, All right. That's yeah. follow-up from you, isn't it? I think that's news from the world of Darren and John. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. John and myself and our respective families and associates did the uh, have have a lovely uh, cooperative uh, New Year session thing period <laughs> together. <laughs> <an> oddest description. <laughs> <laughs> cooperative New Year's. <laughs> yeah, spent spent uh, New Year's together. Had yes. a good time. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was nothing odd about it. There's no, I didn't say there was. People, yeah, you did. <laughs> You're making it <laughs> with odd. your weird description. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes like increasingly as I get older there's the things the stuff that you know you want to say things and it's increasingly difficult to to it to find the right words I find this I mean you're old now you must get this <laughs> all the time <laughs> okay so what are we doing now? we're done on we're done on world news from the world of news finally yeah. We're only 50 minutes in. Let's get to... Christ. See for Cash news. for questions. Cash for questions. Right, so let's start out small. Darren, what's the best dinosaur? Thinking, thinking... Um, 
Now, see, part of me wants to be really smart and say the Peregrine Falcon, but um, the best. Is that all, it's, that all it says? I don't have the questions in front of me. Yeah, what's the best dinosaur? The best dinosaur... I don't know, Ceratosaurus. Ceratosaurus, surprise choice there. Why is it surprise choice? I've even said this on yeah. Tetsu. Yeah, don't you know Tetsu? Haven't you read it and memorized oh, every, it all? <laughs> every article over and over again. Yes, right. Why look, that? look, watch this. Just okay, very look. briefly. If I Google my favoritest dinosaur, uh-huh. aha, and the top hit in this bespoke version of Google, which works for me, is an article called My Most Favoritest Dinosaurs, Ceratosaurids, which appeared on... Oh, and takes us to the Tetsu Wiki. <laughs> well, that's no good. This My Most Favoritest Dinosaurs. Content. Yeah, um, published December my 2007. Oh, one of my most favourite dinosaurs has always been Ceratosaurus. And then talk a bit about Ceratosaurus. I don't know. Yeah, Ceratosaurus is pretty cool. Um, Tyrannosaurus Rex honestly is an awesome, badass dinosaur. It's an amazing beast. And I think a lot of people like me, or maybe me in particular, wouldn't like to say that it's, in quotes, the best dinosaur because everyone because it's such a popular choice and everyone else does it. You know, it's like yeah. the, the, pers- the dinosaur that most people know and would say is their favorite. But... You know, if that wasn't the case, ignoring all that, or just you know, ignore that entirely, yeah, it's still a badass, amazing dinosaur. I mean, it's just kind of a fluke that we discovered it so early on, and it influenced so many of our ideas about dinosaurs and dinosaur evolution. Even if, but even if we found it today, it's like one of the biggest members of its group. It truly is a gnarly, badass, you know, robust hunter killer of big animals. Um, so I. I yeah, Tyrann- Tyrannosaurus Rex. I've got to say, is a, you know, not an objectionable choice. <laughs> Ringing endorsement there. Not an objectionable <laughs> choice. The least bad of the worst options. <clears throat> well, I think the best dinosaur is the pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> and you can buy you can buy a T-shirt with that very joke on my Redbubble shop. Uh, but no, actually, my real answer is Giraffe Titan. Huh. It's clearly the best dinosaur. And for listeners who do not know what the hell that is, what is it? That's Brachiosaurus. Oh, controversial. It's the dinosaur well, wrong, wrongly, you mean wrongly referred to as Brachiosaurus. For it's all more than of, I don't know. I, I, I don't believe in this priority of naming things. It's the one everyone thought was Brachiosaurus for ages. It's the my, thing that comes to mind when you say Brachiosaurus. So it's the big East African one. Yes. Big East African sauropod, which you always see reconstructed. currently mounted in uh, Berlin, the Berlin Museum. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's not a bad choice. Yeah. There you go. Best dinosaur. Yep. Do we need the to say any dinosaur more? Dinosaur previously known as Brachiosaurus or Tyrannosaurus rex? Or Ceratosaurus nasicornis or Ceratosaurus magnicornis, the one with the bigger horns, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. For people who are wondering, um, Brachiosaurus was first named as a North American dinosaur from uh, based on a species called Brachiosaurus altothorax from is it from Colorado I think from the Morrison formation mm. described by Elmer Riggs in I think 1904 then in 
the uh, about 19 I don't know I think about 1912-ish um, uh, Werner Janinch discovered a Brachiosaurus-like sauropod in what was then Deutsch-Ost Africa now Tanzania in East Africa and he thought this was a second species of Brachiosaurus and called it Brachiosaurus branchi and it's represented by really good remains which as John has said are mounted on today at the Humboldt Museum in Berlin and so for approximately 100 years Brachiosaurus branchi this Tanzanian species was the animal that people always thought of as the Brachiosaurus even though Brachiosaurus altothorax from North America from the USA is the original Brachiosaurus and people have noted over the years that well they're actually quite different in several important respects you know in some ways they're more different from one another than our other dinosaurs conventionally put in separate separate genera 1988, Greg Paul, who we must, must have mentioned quite a few times, famous paleo artist, uh, who also writes about dinosaurs and has published a few papers on dinosaurs. Greg Paul said that the um, African one is distinct enough to warrant its own name. He called it Giraffe Titan, and he regarded this as a subgenus, which is more or less useless given that they're already separate species. But um, um, Mike P. Taylor. Um, <laughs> 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 There's a Mike A. Taylor who works on fossil vertebrates. Mike P. Taylor is the sauropod one and SB Powell one and open access advocate Mike Taylor. Mike Taylor published a paper saying that, that yeah, there's there's a lot of differences. Easy enough to warrant them as separate genera. But kind of depends on how your genericometer is set and not everyone accepts this, but I think it's a handy dandy thing. So so Giraffatine mm. for the East African one and Brachiosaurus is the original relatively poorly known USCN one. I wish Greg Paul had gone for a different name. Mm. Um, something closer to Brachiosaurus, maybe. But yes. Jurassic well, this Titan, is... Sound, it just sounds awkward. Well, well, Mike says this in the paper. He says, Mike... It's, it's in the acknowledgements. It's like the last line in the acknowledgements. Something like, you know, I, I apologise to fellow dinosaur workers for having to put such a... a Awful, I forget exact wording, but basically, sorry for giving you such a terrible name for such a beautiful animal. So, so when I introduced him, have I said this on the podcast before? When I introduced him, he was a speaker at TetzuCon. <laughs> so I said, Mike Taylor has done this and done that. You know, Mike Taylor does this. And he also resurrected the name Giraffe Titan. Well done, Mike. <laughs> well done. I clapped, I slow clapped. But unfortunately, yeah. this initiated a genuine ripple of applause. It was like, no, 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 I'm not really clapping. <laughs> it's <so clever. laughs> Yeah. So there you go. There's an unexpected tangent for you, um, Anonymous. That is your real name? Uh, yes. Uh, right. So, yeah, we'll go small to large. So the next one is... In Walking with Dinosaurs... Sorry, it's from Christian Jewell well-known cash for questioner christian jewel and christian mm. asks <gasps> i just forgot to mention i forgot to mention what? the new tape here forgot to mention the new tape here. there's a new species <laughs> of tape here it's called taparus cabamani just got to get that in there because we didn't mention it last yeah. episode this yeah, is pretty serious yeah, yeah. um now because large land mammals they just don't come across come up very often do they no you no um Right, so the interesting thing about this tape here is that it's been, apparently, Teddy Roosevelt shot one and uh, donated it to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and it's been like on a museum shelf since about 1912. 
More recently, it's actually been suggested that Tapras Cabamani might really be the same thing as a, a, a taper that was named by Mark, Mark van Roosemalen. He named this new speech a taper a couple of years ago called T- Tapras Pygmaeus. And uh, he's published a couple of papers well, in the ICZM bulletin saying that um, Cabamani might be the same thing as Pygmaeus. That's kind of, yeah. Glad we Teddy got that Roo- cleared up then. Did I say Teddy Roosevelt shot one? Yes, you did. That's definitely on the drinking game. Good. Right. See, if I, I didn't say that, this? yeah, if I didn't say that now, we'd forget it. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Great. Can I get on with this cash for question then? Continue. Okay. In Walking with Dinosaurs 3D and Disney's Dinosaur, we see huge herd of migrating dinosaurs, even several different species, led by a single dominant individual. That was a funny noise. What it was, was that wasn't about? it? Well, that was my Skype doing something. Somebody, somebody that we're both friends with has just got online on Skype. It's something to do with that. Why does it... Yeah. Okay. So that's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks for that, Skype. Know that Skype. Yeah. yeah. Uh, led by a single dominant individual. Does this phenomenon occur in living tetrapods and or is likely to have occurred in extinct te- tetrapods? Are herds led by single dominant individuals? I think that's the question, isn't it? What is the model that we should use for aggregating? Notice I don't say herding or mm. whatever. For aggregating extinct archosaurs, should we look at um, big herbivorous mammals or should we look at big social birds? Well, most of us would say that we was kind of like a bit of a mix of both, to be honest. But... Um, I first of all think of you know big like social birds like geese or you know emus or whatever you know emus form large aggregations on occasion obviously you know geese and many other birds do and in those aggregations no you don't see the one big alpha leader individual you see like family groups or a group that involves like uh, a male and a bunch of female associates and and in those individuals seem to sort of take it in turns in terms of like who's on the lookout um there does seem to be like a general sort of group decision but it's motivated by uh not random but it's motivated by decisions made by individuals from anywhere in the herd anywhere in the in the group rather so for example let's say there's 100 geese grazing on a field and out of those 100 geese approximately half of them will be on the lookout and any one of those sees, I don't know, a fox approaching, it'll make some alarm call or spring into the air in obvious fright, which will cause its buddies and relatives to jump up, and that will initiate movement in the whole group. But that alarm, that kind of decision can come from anywhere in the group. It's not, they're not all looking to one big uber daddy goose in the middle that's like the big <laughs> boss one. So, <clears throat> so my first thought on that is I, I think I agree with what Christian is, probably has in mind. Um, this this phenomenon is not what we expect for for aggregating archosaurs. So what about like big mammals? Well, in in, in big mammals, herding mammals like you know uh, a bison and cape buffalo and stuff, um, they do tend to have a more kind of like um, yeah big boss. Uh, often male in like bovids, but you know you think of elephant groups. That's like a matriarch, a big a big uh, um, experienced female they they do they do 
t- more tend to have a social style where there is like one one intelligent aged leader that is that is leading that is making the decisions um but I think this depends on the size of social group you're thinking of. So if you think of a group that's, say, let's say somewhere in the order of, like, from a handful to 20 or 30, a group of that kind of size in mammals could well be led by a single leader. If it's elephants, it could be led by a matriarch. If it's bison, well, it could be, like, a um, a big male and, and, a, and a harem and, and, and their offspring and, 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 and stuff. Um, but in any group that's larger than that, so as soon as you get into a group that's like over 30, you know, into the, you know, over 50 or over 100, that tends to be an aggregation of several different groups, each of which has got its own leader, in which case there are several potential animals that could be the ones making the decisions and leading the group. And they seem to move in the same direction. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of stuff I've read about wildebeest. They see, again, it's this sort of this kind of like fish shoal style movement where, <clears throat> they're they're kind of like trending in the same direction. There isn't like they're not following one leader, but um, it's like that's the sensible way to go. And if the herd veers to the left, then through due to I don't know due to individuals following individuals around them, they tend to sort of move in the same direction. But okay. um, um, also we have trackways of um, dinosaurs, don't we? We can sort of see the shape of their groups. And as far as I know, there's not a clear pattern to the way they are arranged, at least well, in sauropods. Yeah. But I, the, the, I haven't read about this for a long time, and I couldn't yeah. be wrong. I haven't read about it for a long time either, but my recollection is that there are a number of, of um, articles and claims from the 1970s and 1980s by people like Robert Bakker, where they're saying that dinosaurs have an obvious social structure that's evident in the track fossils mm. so that you know backer said and this became a popular idea you know repeated in artwork that, that that you see like adults corralling juveniles and juveniles in the middle and stuff and a couple of people that know trackways were like really i don't think we mm. see that at all and lockley martin lockley who's written a huge amount of you know, books and papers and stuff about dinosaur tracks. He specifically contested this. And in one of his books, I think it's called Tracking Dinosaurs, he says that based on the um, uh, sauropod trackways, where you seem to have many individuals moving in the same direction, you have big animals. You seem to have had the bigger animals in front of smaller ones, but you don't have anything like a, you know big dinosaurs flanking little ones in the middle, anything like that. Um, and there's a couple of there's there's a really nice diagram in that book in particular, which, if I remember correctly, it sort of shows shows like a cluster of say three or four real big ones on the left, and then two or three real big ones out on the front right, and then there's like one or two big ones dispersed elsewhere in the herd, and then the others are sort mm-hmm. of like mid sized. You sort of get the impression that there might be big ones somewhere near the frontish, and some of the front is at the edge, but there isn't a distinct herd structure. Yeah. Um, so it could be, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't doesn't provide much evidence that there's not such a thing going on at all. Mm. Mm. Does it? No, no. I'm trying to think. If there's anything else intelligent to say about that? I mean, I would say that. Um, yeah, think about what what the birds do. And I, I, I can only think of really geese at the moment just because just because that's a group of animals we tend to see like you know large numbers uh feeding in like relatively open areas but um and then maybe throw in a bit of the uh 
Yeah, social style of big mammals as well. And then what we yeah. know from the tracks isn't inconsistent. No. Yeah. So, but there's your but, answer. Seems well, unlikely. yeah, yeah, exactly. And specifically to address Christian's specific point, this idea of a single dominant individual leading the way. No, I think that's there's no evidence for that whatsoever. I think that's a, that's a that's just like a cartoon idea, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a, tr- it's a trope, isn't it? To yeah. try and individualize large groups. Yeah. And lots of films, you know, they do the thing where the entire thing depends on the actions of an individual, where in real life we all know it depends on the action. Like a war is won by a single person doing a single thing, right? Mm. Yeah. I yeah. think this is quite a common trope in yeah. sorts of Although, things. although, just segging back to something I just said a minute ago, and which I've since forgotten that I said, yeah, elephants. They may be inspired by animals like elephants where there really is a matriarch who might be much older than all the other members of the group. And then I suppose things like um, gorilla, a gorilla troop, where there's like, you know, the big boss silverback. And uh, maybe in these cases, we're dealing with fairly small groups. That's right. Yeah. Maybe people are thinking of migrating herds. Yeah. They're thinking of that and then they're, yeah, making it up to. mm. So, yeah. 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 Okay. All right, so Let's, that should be his money's yeah. worth. Answered. <laughs> Tick. Green Tick. Um, uh, this one's from John Turmel of time.tetsu.com. Oh, yes. What are your thoughts and opinions on keeping cetaceans in captivity, and are you familiar with the documentaries Blackfish and The Cove? Yeah. Have you so, seen? Have you seen? No, I haven't seen either of them. I know what right. I know what Blackfish is about. I've read about it, but I haven't. Yeah, I've seen Blackfish a couple of times. Actually, um, I watched it. Uh, I think I watched it online. Went to some trouble to watch it, and then it was shown for free on TV. <laughs> and uh, Tony watched it, and and I was interested enough in it to watch it again with her. So I've seen. I've, I know Blackfish quite well. I haven't seen the Cove. And I don't know anything about it. Blackfish, for those people who don't know about it, is about the uh, history of the killer whales kept in captivity at, I think, San Diego SeaWorld, focusing in particular on one male whale who, is it Shamu, one of the really famous ones? And um, it's quite a sad story. Um, It's all about the fact that, okay, you put these whales in captivity and they're initially kept in Something that's kind of the size of the same, the same as if you filled up a single room in your house with water and you know lived in that. If you're a human-sized cetacean, um, so they're kept in these small tanks, and then they're um, basically the whales aren't happy, and the, they put whales together and pretend that they're like family groups, and it didn't work out at all well. And the whales like fought with one another, bit one another. Um, and also the whales were different kinds of whales. They came from different places. And of course, back then they sort of assumed that a killer whale is a killer whale. They're all the same. But it turns out these different populations of killer whales have been uh, separated. They're where? racist. They didn't realize that killer whales are racist. They're massively racist. They're <laughs> kinds of killer whales that have been separated for like tens of thousands at least at least tens of thousands of years possibly more so they're more different 
you know, you think of like the most different kinds of people. Something we've also discussed in Tetsu a long time, the Tetsu podcast a long time ago. They're more different than the most different kinds of people. Some of them have been separated for like hundreds of thousands of years. Some of these different kinds of killer whales might be different species. It's like that big a deal. So, but whatever, that's, that's kind of irrelevant. Whatever, the, the whales just didn't get on. They sort of fought with one another. And um, this, if it is Shamu, I, no, I hope, it's Tillich. Ah, Tillicum. Tillicum. That's it. Tillicum. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He, uh, like, attacked someone or something. And then most of the film centers around attacks on people, including uh, at least one death, a lady that was drowned. Um, and not just any old person that was wandering in the pool. You know, she was one of the trainers. So uh, it paints a very negative view of the keeping of these animals in captivity, the way they've behaved in captivity. And also the interaction, you know, the, the fact that people are making these whales do things they don't want to. They're not happy. They're not happy with one another. They're fighting. Um, it's it's a uh, it's really, you know, I found it pretty pretty powerful, pretty uh, compelling, enjoyable viewing. Very interesting. And of course, there's been a bit of a backlash um, with people saying, "Oh, there's loads of factual errors in it." And and even if you check those out, check out the factual errors, the things that they, the things where it's said that they put undue bias on something or they put this in the wrong context or they got that factually wrong even when you take those things into account nah you're not you're not off the hook <laughs> um i forget i forget what the responses were but they were really kind of i don't care that's just not that doesn't make a difference to the whole point of the film so yeah so um i mean i already thought before having i do i do not see you know i'm sure most people listening to us now would not need to see a movie about it to already know that already think that keeping an animal like a killer whale in a tank and make it entertain, you know, make it jump through hoops and stuff, you would already think that's probably a bad thing um, <coughs> yeah. in general. Uh, but I think the what's particularly interesting is the, um, I guess, the feeling that they are quite intelligent and looking at the psychology of what's going on for them. Um, I'm just reading here, Tillicum has killed three people, which is a lot. And and elephants are known for this too. You know, they'll they'll continue doing tricks and then suddenly they'll snap and they'll just kill someone. Yeah. And I, and I think it's I think it's quite interesting that these what these animals are going through psychologically and I wonder what it compares to with people and uh well, they so say they're in, certainly being traumatized. I think is what's going on. They're they're not they're not they don't <laughs> they're not. It's I don't think it's just normal behavior um, that's going on. That some animals are just unpredictable. I think there's some sort of bad psychological mm. effect going on there. Well, they say in Blackfish that Tillicum might actually have been driven in quotes clinically insane or something. They say he might actually be psychologically abnormal due to the the stress and 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 the totally abnormal situation that he and these other whales have been in i mean they're not in so how many the number of aggressive um interactions recorded both whale whale and whale human that have now been recorded among in these captive groups is really high and how many aggressive interactions are known to normally occur in the wild well, I think I think the answer is zero. I think people have never seen killer whales fighting, and there's no documented like attacks on people or anything like that. So, 
there's some reason, uh, the case is not completely watertight, but there's some reason for thinking that all this aggressive behavior is completely psychologically abnormal. Then they also make the point in the documentary that tilicum has actually been used as like a, a stock breeding bull. Mm. Bull? Is that the right word for a male whale? Whatever. They've, they've used him as a stud yeah. animal. And like a huge percentage of captive killer whales have, um, are, are of tilicum ancestry. Yeah. So. Although, now, you know, if he's been, if they, because it's interesting calling it aggressive behavior. It's, it's, it's the, I think it's the unpredictable nature that's interesting. Because if, imagine you, you got um, any large predator and, Oh my god! It it's, it starts you know eating people or whatever. A lion can kill a man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no one will be surprised. They're doing what you'd expect. Well, I think what's interesting about them is that they're a lot of the time they're doing what they're trained to do or they're playing the game, and then occasionally they'll snap. I mm. think that's sort of the interesting thing, which suggests that there's something much more complicated going on than they're just aggressive. And right, <clears throat> the a lot of these incidents have been filmed, and. They're, they're featured in the uh, in Blackfish. Like I say, I haven't seen the cove again, but they're certainly in Blackfish. And my impression from them is that what's happening is the the animals are doing kind of what people wanted them to do, but then they kind of got frustrated. The, 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 the animal, the whale, got frustrated and then thought, no, I'm going to take this to like the next level. So, for example, there's a bit where one of them's got a woman riding on its back and it's all going fine and well. And then it like playfully chews on a foot. And it's like, if it let go of a foot straight away, no problem. Yeah, okay, it's just playing with you. But of course, if this animal dives down and stays down for maybe a minute, that woman is dead. And that kind of, she doesn't die, this particular case. But that's the sort of thing that happens. It's like, it's kind of like a frustrated, like just taking it beyond the edge of the, the behavior that they're meant to do. You sort of get the impression that they're doing the things that they know they're meant to do. There's one case where they think that Tillicum didn't hear uh, a signal that he was meant. He was like he didn't hear a whistle blow, and so he didn't do the certain thing that they wanted him to do. So as a consequence, he wasn't rewarded. He wasn't given his fish thing. And then the next thing he does is an aggressive thing, and it almost I'm remembering I could have this somewhat incorrect, but my memory is that. He, he then, the next thing he does is aggressive because he was frustrated that he wasn't rewarded and he wasn't rewarded because he didn't hear the signal. So it's, this, is, this is the same with you know, any, any animal that you're, that you're training if, um, Yeah. Uh, can't remember where I was going with that. But, um, well, it's getting old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so keeping whales in captivity now... There's on the on the on the the side of keeping whales in captivity is a good thing. You could say that well, it's because it teaches people how awesome whales are. Because hardly any of the people that have seen whales in captivity are ever going to see them in the wild. Is that outweighed by the fact that these whales are desperately unhappy? It's not right to keep them in captivity because they're not having their any of their behavioural. Um, needs met they're not you know interacting in the world in a way that they would like to or should do um, plus they're a danger to one another they're a danger to the people that interact with them does the, do those negative things outweigh the fact that people enjoy whales because they're cool um, and I kind of think that on balance yes <laughs> <laughs> that um, that if people want to there's, there's, if people really want to 
are there enough educational things out there about whales that teach people how awesome whales are and how deserving they are of, you know, conservation? Um, kind of, you know, if what, I'm, what I'm trying to enunciate here is if we didn't have these whale parks at all, would we still have the sort of positive feelings that we do about killer whales? Yeah. That's, that's an open-ended question. And I think the answer is yes, we already would. If you imagine there was a world without these parks, um, yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, it is difficult to answer because obviously you'd have to try a world without it, and we can't, you know, we can't turn back time and do that. Um, also, I guess there's the other question of, well, like zoos, right? What what mm. sort of what would be the minimum standard that you could get it to so it was okay? You know, it was... You weren't traumatising the animals too badly. Because um, you know, what size tank could you get it to? What other conditions do you need to keep them interested and happy? You know, is it is it possible? Yeah. Is it at all feasible to keep keep these animals... Mm. In some in some sort of reasonable condition, because I think the I think it's fairly clear that the condition they're in is not keeping them at all happy, traumatizing yeah. them. Um, yeah, so I don't think it's a black and white question. Mm. No, I agree. Yeah, I, I I totally I totally agree. I would I would have said the same thing. It's like for lots of animals we keep in captivity, we can justify it because there is actually a genuine you know conservation based reason for keeping them in captivity. A lot of the zoos and parks and such that keep them do have a conservation ethic in mind these days. You know, think think things are improving over time. Um, but for something like a killer whale or, or any cetacean, you can't mimic the sort of habitat where it's where it's uh, going to be happy, where 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 it's fair at all, fair on the animal. It doesn't do any good for the animal. It's not like they are breeding loads of killer whales and releasing them back into the wild to counteract um yeah decline in the wild yeah and to cap it all it's like the idea that that animals exist in zoos for purely for our entertainment you know chimpanzees tea parties and that sort of thing that's mostly died these days because people recognize that uh for various reasons you know for the dignity of respect to the animals and also for the fact that you know if we want to look at animals you should be seeing them do animal things not seeing them <laughs> do silly people things that hasn't happened with killer whales and it's like they're still jumping through hoops and catching fish and people riding on their backs and stuff yeah and although i would say that the idea isn't absurd that animals could adapt intelligent animals could adapt to a different way of life and be happy i mean we have so we're not slaves though you're not no, trapped in no, a exactly, room. But, no, um, but what I'm saying is that you don't have to recreate exactly the conditions mm. that you would have in the wild. There are just... You have to take care of those sorts of needs in in different ways, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we've got any way of knowing what those are for whales, um, given that we can't really talk to them. Mm. So that would be quite challenging to know whether you were keeping them happy or whether you were just keeping them just below the threshold before they kill people. Um, <laughs> just to the edge of psychosis. <laughs> yeah, just at the edge of psychosis all the time. Yeah, so... Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, okay. 
Oh, uh, that's a that's probably a no. Then we probably shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, on a similar subject, Irene uh, Delft. So, so no, just just finish. Just say so. Okay. The answer to the answer to the question is that one of us is familiar with Blackfish, but not with the Cove. Mm. And I think we've just given a pretty extensive discussion of our thoughts. So I think we've, so. Thank you, John. Termel, that is right. So on a similar topic, this one's from Irene Delts, friend of the show, Irene. Since Darren and family have a pet lizard, I'm curious about one, what species it is, and two, what you think about keeping reptiles as pets. And she says, I do own some reptiles myself, so obviously I'm not against it. Right. So, what species is it? She is, uh, she's called Flame, and she's a uh, bearded dragon. So I want to say Pagona viticeps. Is that still the right name for bearded dragons? Pagona viticeps, it does seem to be. And specifically, she is, so that's the central bearded dragon, Pagona viticeps, one of several species in this group. She is a domestic morph. Um, she's like an orange one. So, what is there a name? They, the people that create these breeds, they give them all funny names. So, let's see if there's like a, you know, they're called citrus bearded, bearded dragons or something like that. Maybe, maybe it's just called orange bearded dragon, but she's an orange bearded dragon. So, this is not an animal that occurs in the wild. This is a domestic morph. And as I covered on Tetrapod Zoology some months ago in an article about the Australian dragons, Australian gamids, um, there's a whole bunch of really unusual domestic morphs that people have have bred in this in this species. Um, and having a lizard is a really interesting thing. I've kept lizards before. I used to keep anoles and swifts many years ago, and um, um, you just get. I, I think you know it helps give you an appreciation of the way the lizard mind works, what lizards get up to. And this this lizard, I I think you know. Flame is she's called Flame because of because of the sort of bright colours on the side of her face. Um, yeah, there's there's <laughs> you've you've painted your lizard with flame striping, <laughs> haven't you? We have. Go we faster, flames. We thought she'd look better that way, but um, there's the there's the definite indication of like a, a you know uh, an intelligence, a cheekiness, and stuff like that, like. Tell you an interesting thing I learned about lizards the other day. Uh, mm. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about this much, and I haven't ever been asked about it. But did you know that lizards can noisily fart? Right now, you might think that big fat iguanas that eat loads of cabbage or whatever can, but well, this bearded dragon, she deliberately pooped all over me, uh, well down my leg anyway, and um, and really forced it out. <laughs> it was quite. Like, Oh, that. oh, thanks for that. And we thought at the time that it was because she was trying to get back in her tank. She kept on climbing back to her tank, which she's got a big viv. It's like, I don't know, meter two, meter point two long-ish. And she was trying to climb back on the settee to get towards the tank, and I wouldn't let her. And then she'd uh, defecate all over me. So we thought at the time that was deliberate, and it may well be because there are some indications that bearded dragons really are quite smart. As animals go, they've recently been shown to like learn by watching other bearded dragons. There was a, an experiment where some bearded dragons were taught how to open a door to get their food, and then um, they let some bearded dragons watch it, and others not watch it. Oh, I don't know. Whatever. There was a, there was a, there was a sufficient amount of control in this experiment, and they were able to show that the um, 
the ones that had watched it had taught how to ah oh, so that's what you do with the, those door things so so that's sorry that's a rambling rambling blah blah blah, blah. that's a bit about my lizard well, actually, actually 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 my wife's lizard tony's lizard bought it without my consent because she does that sort of stuff kids dogs lizards whatever next <laughs> all without uh, your consent all without my consent these things just <laughs> appear in the house but as to the larger question what do i think about reptiles as pets um there is I've, again this has been covered on touchboard zorgy you can find it in an article was it an article about snakes i can't remember i'll see if i can try and find it but there's very good grounds for thinking that the um, international trade in reptiles and amphibians is an unmitigated evil, a, a, a force truly like that's that's just horrible on every level, and the like. People are, you know, the, all the all the people involved in this trade and when i say this trade i mean the people that are catching animals in the wild and shipping them around the world the people involved in that trade are seeing these animals as little dollar signs they're only interested in them for the money so they go out to an area and they basically strip mine it of all the frogs chameleons the lizards you know yeah, chameleons are lizards i know but you know all the lizards and frogs and whatever some snakes as well uh, and shipping them around the world and the mortality rates are disgusting it's like i think there's some of the companies some of the people involved in this where it's like you know one animal in i don't know 20 or 30 or something survives it's just horrible and there's these um articles about the um what the trade looks like at the airport end you know where they open these packages and they find you know like a box of 50 frogs and like you know one or two are alive just like tens and tens and tens of dead dead bodies it's it's really bad and there's a couple of people really corrupt people at the top rich corrupt people at the top in like tropical asian countries and african countries and south american countries that um yeah just running this just like this trade and only seeing the animals as uh as uh, like I say, dollar signs. Not interested in the welfare or anything like that. It's really, it's really bad. So that makes me think that if we're talking about the ownership of reptiles and amphibians, if it involves the often illegal, but not necessarily illegal, if it involves the importation of species from tropical countries where there is this trade problem involved, then it's truly a bad thing. And anyone who cares and is responsible should not do anything to support it and should basically, you know, try and help it to be stopped. Uh, so I'm going to have to try and Google it. Trade in exotic, let's try reptiles, is evil. Uh, yeah, so you find, okay, this article, I think the one in The Ecologist that I saw in November last year, the, the exotic pet trade is a global evil that must be stopped. That was the thing I used on... Uh, let's see if I can now find the Tetrapod Zoology summary. Because <clears throat> I, I won't have time to read the whole article. Oh, so it was in one of my uh, Monitor Lizard articles. So February 2014. Um, lean, green, and rarely seen. No, the hell, I would not type, give an article that name. That's horrible. Oh, God, I did. That's because I was quoting someone else. Okay, so quotes. Lean, green, and rarely seen. Enthralling prasinoid tree monitors. Scroll down to the end, skip to the end. One final issue requires mention here. All of the species 
here, so all these obscure monitors, as discussed in the article, are highly sought after the pet trade. And if you're at all familiar with the monitors kept and bred in captivity, you'll likely already have seen one or some of the attacks are discussed here. Indeed, some were initially discovered only after they've been imported to Europe for use in the pet trade. Habitat destruction due to logging, mining and so on, all represent dangers to these forest-dwelling lizards. No, that other monitors are being horrendously overexploited with the skin trade, but the impact of commercial collecting shouldn't be underestimated. There are some indications that uncontrolled collecting, even of CITES-listed species, um, represents a very real danger, as goes the health of these populations. Technical papers. I cite a technical paper that's uh, relevant to this. And if you think that people interested in the commercial collection and trade of, of tropical reptiles are operating within sensible, responsible boundaries, think again. Do check out the depressing articles on this issue here, here, and here. Spread the word. Um, so I've linked to um, a couple of things that basically talk about the the thing that I've just been yeah, yeah. just been talking about. So because um, I'm trying to one, there's an article here. Um, return, it's called Return of the Lizard King. It was published on the Al Jazeera site. And oh, I'm getting... Oh, God, it's a video. Okay, I'm not going to watch a video. It's about this guy in Malaysia, uh, Anson Wong. Anson Wong has been the internationally recognized face of the trade, as in the trade in tropical reptiles and amphibians. Um... The Pablo Escobar of animal trafficking, according to some. The Malaysian's notoriety stems from 1998 when he was arrested by U.S. agents after they lured him to Mexico in a highly elaborate five-year investigation that became a best-selling book, The Lizard King. He was later convicted for smuggling endangered species and sentenced to 71 months in prison. And this article then talks about how after coming out of prison, basically he just carried on and it's kind of like all he does. And um, this isn't just... We're not talking about one guy doing it. We're talking about like a... Uh, a leader of a little business empire Um, and there's links to poaching and and, you know well wildlife trafficking and smuggling and stuff uh, which is which is literally it's you know it's like strip mining um, the the tropics and selling the stuff to um, yeah to, to western countries mostly western countries now there's a side argument here which is you can also argue this is one of those cases of what people have called biopiracy, which is where so people in let's say Malaysia are collecting tropical reptiles and amphibians through middlemen, selling them to some big business guru who's then selling them to the United States or Western Europe. Um, and the animals you go and buy one of these animals in a shop or or on the black market in Europe or North America. And it'll cost you quite a lot. You know, a tropical lizard, an obscure tropical lizard, even of an endangered species, they can be on sale for hundreds or even thousands of pounds or dollars. Do the, do the people in, like, let's say, Malaysia, hypothetically, do they get that kind of money for collecting them? No, they don't. They get like a little tiny pittance. So this is one of those things where the value of these animals is being exchanged within the Western world and isn't going back to the people that live in the countries where these animals come from. So it's a bad deal for the animals. The animals are screwed. You know, they, most of them die in captivity or they're not going to breed. They're not going to contribute to the gene pool for these animals. But also in terms of like global economics and human rights and all that sort of stuff, it's, I think there's a good case to be made for it being a bad thing there as well. So, um, so I think I've made my point there, haven't I? Like, yeah, you sure. Yeah. Yes, you sure have. Okay. I, I would say that that sort of one side of it isn't it that's yeah the trade yeah. in um wild species 
uh, just yeah. probably best just to stay completely clear of that because exactly you'll exactly. never know. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I, I suppose there are more clearly domesticated varieties of um, yeah uh, reptiles. Exactly, which is why I can talk about this when I've got a form of bearded dragon which doesn't exist in the wild. Obviously, at the yeah. start, you know, all these animals, yeah, some un- unlucky bunch of bearded dragons were extracted from their home in Australia, but um, the fact that there's now a huge global population of these things this animal isn't in danger in the world there are now breeds that don't exist in the world that now exist only in captivity i think these if you're gonna get a reptile amphibian make sure it's an animal that's widely bred in captivity isn't in danger in the world they're not being taken from the world your individual doesn't come from the wild and that you are not in any way contributing to the global problems that these animals are facing um so I think we can have a pet orange bearded dragon and not be concerned that we're contributing to any of the problems. So uh, that sums up my general thoughts. Thank <laughs> oh, <I don't. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay, so... Since we've run so long, we're going to move Dallas Krenzel's uh, question to next episode. Thank you, Dallas, though. We'll, we'll come back yeah. to you later. Yeah. Yeah. Give it the time it deserves rather than trying to cram it into this one. Yeah. Um, so, popular tat. The final part of the show, popular tat. So, popular tat. you seen any good movies lately, John? No, but I have seen Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Ah, well, I've seen Paddington Bear. Yeah, which I, which was I haven't good. seen. Oh, that's yeah. great. I seriously, I really liked it. <laughs> Everyone says it's really good. That's surprising yeah. to me. Uh, me, uh, surprising to me also. I thought it would be. Yeah. I thought it was going to be twee and annoying. Yeah, and the it, trailer kind of looked a bit twee and annoying. But yeah, yeah. Well, I thought they were going to go for that like cutesy kind of good life, yieldy Englandy thing, and. Mm. Obviously, they did a little bit. You know, Paddington Station looks much nicer in the film than it does in real life, that kind of stuff. And everybody's really nice. People in London, which isn't real life. Everyone in London's... But, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. It's good. The bear looks good. Um, I also saw Hobbit 3, Lust for Glory, uh, yeah. which... Uh, no, what's it called? The Desolation... No, it's not the Desolation of Smaug. Um, the um, Battle of the Five Armies. Yeah. Right. I but but anyway... That. I haven't seen that either, uh, yeah, it was all right. Yeah. It was, uh... <laughs> okay. But we're here to talk about Sophie of the Planet of the Apes. Um, no. <laughs> no. Dawn of the Apes. Dawn uh, and of the Planet of the Apes. And this is w- part of the reason we're talking about this is we've just finished the cash for questions section, but we did have a cash for question many moons ago from mm. Patrick Murphy, I think. Um, do we have it in the... Did we ever write it down in the, the, the table of things here? Uh, probably. Uh, Patrick Murphy, yes, it is. Here, here it is. It's, it's undated. I think it was one of the ones that got lost, and he sent it again. Have either of you seen the new Planet of the Apes movies, either Rise or Dawn, and just how much did John hate them? Or perhaps more seriously, how well do they pull off intelligent, non-human great apes? Well, here we're going to talk about the movie, movies in general terms. So we're going to, you know... Right, you can start. Are we? Are we not? Because I don't remember... Oh, yeah, they're all a bit of a blur to me now. Um, yeah, but it's the same storyline, same characters and everything. Yeah, so if you, but so the previous I saw them years one, apart and I... Well, sort of, okay, let me tell you how it... 
goes. Yeah, how it goes. Okay. Um, that's a line from Adventure Time. Mm. Bit with Jake and the Dancing Beetle. I love that bit. Dancing Bug. Um, God, sorry. <laughs> right. Rise of the Planet of the Apes. There's an ape. There's a chimpanzee called Caesar, played by Andy Serkis. And um, he belongs to James Franco. You know James Franco from the TV, the films? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, James Franco, James Franco, uh, I, my, apart from Rise of the Planet of the Apes, James Franco is in that uh, advert for that perfume with the Russ and Murphy cover of Slave to Love. Oh, I love that advert. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, he plays the Green Goblin in uh, the Harold Ramey Spider-Man Worst movie. Worst tangent ever. Get on with it. <laughs> anyway, the film's, the film's about uh, Caesar being really smart and yeah. Caesar is brought into a, a community where he's told that, because he can't, he can't live with people anymore because he, like, uh, attacks a man. Um He's taken to what's basically meant to be like a, a safe place, like a, a haven for apes, non-human apes. And, um, but they're treated really badly and they're using experiments and everything. And he leads a revolt. Caesar leads a revolt and escapes. And also they has, they has some kind of like, Caesar gets hold of some magic canisters, some stuff that kills people but makes non-human apes super smart. And that's kind of how Rise of the Planet Apes ends mm. so dawn of the planet of the apes those apes have now got their own community in the city with the golden gate bridge in it san i'm not going to san francisco san francisco because i always get it wrong i always say san diego thank you cameron for correcting me on that um yeah and it's but it's set in a post-apocalyptic world isn't it because most people have died and fought among themselves and everything and there's this like little community of people Kind of ragtag. Um, where do we start? What do you want to say? Well, I can start enumerating the ways I didn't like it. <laughs> if that would help. Should I? Should we start with the <laughs> negative view or the positive view? Because we have different views on this one. Yeah, you start. You start with well, the positive view. Well, I quite liked it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was intelligent with an incisive storyline. No, it was. These movies, like, okay, this is like, this is just like the Star Wars prequels, where there's a little kid that's meant to be baby Darth Vader, and how are you going to get to him being Darth Vader at the end? And it's like, it doesn't really matter what else happens in the story, because that's where it's going, right? And, and then all this other stuff. Let's just, oh, let's just put in some big battles and some space fights and some irrelevant nonsense, the, the, so long as there's, you know, and they're doing that with these Planet of the Apes prequels, because they are prequels, because they're setting up, the next film they're going to do is obviously the one where non-human apes take over and it becomes the planet of the non-human apes, right? That's where they're going with this. It's inevitable. So, so what, we're, at the, we're in the middle part of the story. All they can do is say the apes are building in number and um, that's, that's basically the storyline, isn't it? There's more apes and they are riding horses and stuff and uh, that's pretty much all I remember the human characters (laughs) (laughs) human characters brilliantly crafted well played highly complex (laughs) irony irony (laughs) 
you, you can you can take you can take the banner on that one. Uh, and the the apes. I hate saying apes when it's not humans because I'm sorry, humans are apes, whether you like it or not. The chimpanzees and other species, they don't look too bad. Caesar, I think, looks the least goodest of them. I'm not sure what it... The least goodest. Yeah, it's something about his face, his eyes. I don't know, it just doesn't... I mean, the size of them is kind of a bit weird. Are they like super chimps? Because some of them are huge. I thought the CG kind of broke down for the cg is generally you know pretty awesome but it broke down a little bit when we start off the movie with the um the 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 chimps hunting whoppity red you know big american red deer type thing and there's this stampede of deer funnily enough every single deer in the herd seems to be a, a resplendent adult male with giant antlers which was a bit weird but um yeah the the deer which i'm pretty sure is cg they didn't look so hot and there's also a fight with a bear and the bear also kind of didn't look quite right for me they, they, they did a sort of few kind of classic tropey things about movie bears like whenever there's a grizzly bear in a movie and it stands up and goes <laughs> to the camera one of the things I always do is you go this for the benefit big... of the listeners you're pulling out your lower lip thank you a big fluffy dangly yeah. kind of lip, lip thing which they always show in movie bears and that's down to like one or two superstar movie bears and it's not like a ubiquitous thing of bears in general because mm. all bears aren't the same they're not all big massive like flabby old male ones um so yeah that didn't work so well um the the it bugs me how insanely agile the chimpanzees are there's bits there's many times in the movie where you see them like traveling through the trees and they always travel like for some reason they can only travel 20 meters up off the ground and they they're flying like arrows from tree to tree to tree that always bugs me but um i can't think of anything else smart to say in general so this was the positive yeah yes chimpanzees (laughs) and the floppy lip bears yeah they they were the positive aspects of the film (laughs) yeah I'm going to say, I actually, I didn't mind Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I didn't think it was a great film, but I, I sort of forgot about it, I guess. I'd never, yeah, it was not not a bad film. I was entertained, fine. Um, Obviously, I didn't remember very much about it, but yeah, it was okay. Whereas this one, which everyone said, all the ratings and stuff online, and let me just check that because that changes suggested this was really good. 91% mm. on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, mm. And I felt like it was easily the weakest one. And let me count the ways. <laughs> <laughs> the plot was freaking ridiculous. Mm. What were those people doing in San Francisco? Why would you choose San Francisco with all those great big falling down buildings? Makes absolutely no sense. They could only get power from a dam dam that had been out of commission for many, many years. And all they had to do was clear out a tunnel and all the other electrics in between were fine. None of that made any sense at all. Did they try to negotiate with the apes, saying, actually, all we need to go in is do this, and then we'll leave you alone? No, they didn't say anything like that. They they went the most gung-ho, let's fight with them way. No, 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 that's not true. They specifically said they would only go there 
and then leave you alone. That was part of the deal. But people being what people are, they couldn't, they couldn't do that. So they cheated. They, so they, the apes felt betrayed. Because, whatever, carry on. Sorry. No, there, no, there was something wrong with the negotiation. I can't remember. Yeah, I probably uh. said that wrong. Um, I don't remember films as well as you do. I think it was probably the ape side that was a bit ridiculous. Um, mm. And the dialogue is utterly atrocious. They're all little canned bits out of stuff. Mm. You know, mm. it feels like it's all copied and pasted. It doesn't feel like anyone wrote the script. It feels like it was a script <laughs> written by a machine. <laughs> <laughs> chops up all the films. Oh, so there's this scene? Well, put in that bit of dialogue. <laughs> Every single line is like that. Yeah. Sexist. Unbelievably yeah. sexist. So, there were, what, two women in it, maybe? I don't know. Like, well, there's, if that... in, the, in the crowd scenes, there's at least five. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yep. There's a bit Speaking where one woman shouts out. Yep. Speaking roles, one, really, I would say. <laughs> and... And on the ape side, and I'm going to compare this to the original Planet of the Apes, where the speaking roles for women, women apes. <laughs> she's a doctor, isn't she, in the original one? Yeah. She's the, one of the main characters, and she's a doctor. In the current, in the, in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, there's only one woman, and it's What's-His-Face's wife, who's dying. I mean, I don't think she even says anything. There are no female characters amongst the apes. Mm. And Which, do you need to carry on or can I interject right there? Because You can interject, yeah. Well, I just want to say that... What are you going to say? Yeah, but go ahead. What, what am I going to say then, smarty pants? No, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm this say, was criticism, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. This was a criticism made at the time the movie was, when it was out in cinemas, and very stupid decision, If you because if you really were negotiating with um, chimpanzees in particular, well, we know, I think mo this is like general knowledge now, you don't have to be a, a primatologist to know this, but how do they react to men? Well, generally aggressively, like, you know, there's cases where chimpanzees will come up and like punch men in the back and stuff when they, when they go and watch them, whereas they don't feel that they have to flex their muscles as much. Given that, you know, if you're talking to, we can change our culture, you know, any kind of person could act as an ambassador for, for <clears throat> sorry, for a group of people, but chimpanzees, they're not going to change, you know, it's, you're going to be dealing with male ones, males are the bosses in their um, communities. Um, but yeah, and yeah, so women seem to just not come with the same baggage as, as men do when it comes to interacting with them. So, yeah, so that, that was, sorry, I mean, people have made that point many times. Yeah, right? yes. Um. But it's just, I mean, it sounds like an, an irritating point to keep going on about, but it was so notable in this one mm. and so far backwards that I just, uh, and combined with the utterly appalling dialogue, just made me feel like this is a this is a third-rate film. This is not even a second-rate film. This is a third-rate film. And I've got no idea where the rating came from. Why <coughs> do people love this film? <coughs> the plot was stupid. The dialogue was awful. It was sexist as hell. The CG was okay, but not that great. What? What is? What? What has this film got going for it? Uh, <laughs> what do the chimpanzees eat? We see they go fishing. Mm. They've gone fishing, but like they would struggle to survive on um, like animal food. 
I don't know, because but they're, they're also shown hunting deer and everything. So I guess they, they obviously did think of that. They thought, oh, they're eating lots of meat. But you live in somewhere like that, as opposed to like the tropical forests that chimpanzees, gorillas and orangutans actually come from. I mean, much of their ecology is based around finding fruit, which is not so easy to come by in the Californian woodlands. Um, I don't know. It's not as if we have any botanists listening to the show who will yeah. inform us what, on what, that, what, is it? What were the people <laughs> eating? Uh, canned goods? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> were they all? Were they still living on canned goods? I mean, it looked like it was many years after that sort of stuff had broken down. Yeah, they did actually and have a there were a, a fair number of them. Yeah. Um, uh, just another com- weird weakness in the whole thing. It feels like they decided on a bunch of things, like it was going to be in San Francisco, they were going to pe- put the people there and the apes in the forest, and then just didn't really bother to explain any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Or even mm-hmm. give us a plausible out. And hmm. So is it is it that they set these things up, they've got these things in place because they are specifically thinking of what they're going to do in the next film? The, the Darth Vader syndrome thing that I was talking about is that is that why it's like well, well the movie's got to be set in San Francisco because we're going to use that bridge in some way um, yeah uh, although I think uh, I, maybe I think some of the decisions are like that but I think a lot of the decisions are just about scenes and setting that they like you know yeah. they like certain they want certain scenes in the film and they want certain <laughs> settings and feelings but they don't they don't let the plot drive any of that. They they hang the plot around that. Yeah. Well, one thing that occurred to me during the movie as well is that, that you know you think what is it about humans that makes humans do different things from other apes? And there's you know a whole list of things, including like the style of vocal communication we have, the tool use we have, our domestication of other animals, uh, and so on and so forth. Use of fire and stuff. But then you think of the apes in. The, those movies, what is it in their universe that makes humans different from other apes? And the answer is hairiness. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's about it, you know, that's because those, it, yeah. those, they showed the, the film opens, I think, with a hunting party of chimpanzees and they've got like, uh, you know, faced the, the wall paint faces. They've, mm. they've painted themselves and we, they're, um, their their community shows an obvious understanding of the mechanics of construction. You know, they've and the writing and reading. They're able to read and write. So um, I don't I don't really have a specific point to make here. I'm just saying that that you've now like in in their hypothetical world, obviously apes are on an equal footing, as it were, to to people. You know, if apes can ride horses and wield machine guns and read and write and shout to each other over distance. Because that's a special thing about human communication. We can shout over great distances, which, okay, lots of animals can do that. But we can also go whisper really complicated things to one another in close quarters. I don't know. Other animals can't do that, can they? <laughs> uh, sorry, wrong, because they can. But, um, uh. <laughs> well, complex communication. It's unclear how complex the communication in other animals is, right? Mm. I mean, there, there are... Uh, Examples which you can point to, which are probably fairly complex, but I don't, I don't think there's. The What's that little bit is? You say Tommy and the old prospector are trapped in the stick, of, <laughs> trapped in the well with a stick of dynamite, trapped in the prospector's tower, and now they're going to be blown to smithereens. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, but that's, that's sort of point of the Planet of the Apes, isn't it? That they're they're not so far off, and that they do turn into the new 
than you humans. Mm. Well, they take that role. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is that though they still appear to retain their strength and agility, or even super agility, so they've actually become superhuman. If they're the smartest people and um, stronger too, mm. much more agile, um, they're better than people. They're faster, stronger, better. Yeah. Right? Oh, and also um, they're able to cope with really cool conditions, perpetual mm. cool conditions. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, because also climate is kind of a limiting factor for tropical primates. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one small little trope which was in it, which I also didn't like, was that uh, ugly chimps are bad and good looking chimps are good. Mm hmm. It's the ugly people are bad trope, um, mm. which is not really a big point because they do it in everything, but it is quite annoying. And it did sort of remind me just how tropey this film was, that everything yeah. in it is glued together from bits and pieces of this. It felt like a mashup, not a not a film <laughs> to me. Yeah, I would, I would say to their, their defense, that's not completely accurate because there's one chimp who is who is a particularly ugly looking chimp and yet he is loyal to caesar he's the one who looks to me those of you who know chimpanzees he looks to be based on oliver he's uh he's got hardly any body hair um and he's in the in the previous film he's the one who initially is like a badass like bully one but then caesar Caesar frees the gorilla, befriends the gorilla, and then uses the gorilla to beat on this chimp. And this chimp is now subservient to Caesar. Uh, All right. So, so he, uh, yeah, because Cobra is the Cobra's the right. baddie one in this, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So um, ape shall not kill ape unless it's Cobra, which case it's okay yeah. to murder him, drop him off a. Yeah, that's right. Pretty bold decision. <laughs> yeah. Um evolutionary wise and that sort of stuff. I don't know how much there is to say about this because it's I think it's a shame that they ditched the whole well, I think the plot in the original film was that it was it was a long time, right? That um what's his name? Uh, John Heston. When, yeah, Charlton Heston landed on the planet. It was a long time and I I feel like the plot was that the original in the original one was that the apes had evolved naturally. You know that this is what had happened. It had been a couple mm. of million years or something like this. And I think it's a shame in the new ones that they've just gone, well, no, 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 it's just some sort of super drug thing. You know, mm. uh, it's not as interesting. I don't like it very much. I don't like it as much as the notion, what the sort of future evolution notion of it, the mm. original, which seems more interesting to me. Um, and also <gasps> makes it the new one less Does it mean in, in the original Planet of the Apes movies... I'm trying to remember the names of the characters. Dr. Sayas? Dr. Sayas, Dr. Sayas, yeah. Dr. Sayas, Dr. Sayas. Does that mean that the name of the, the, the main orangutan character in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is Maurice? Does that mean Maurice is going to become... Because Maurice is, al- is already shown as being quite learned. There's bits where we see him looking through books and stuff. Does that mean he's going to become Dr. Sayas? <laughs> <laughs> and in and in the the Marky Mark uh, remake, the Tim Burton one, is the baddie chimpanzee in that called? Uh, what's his name? Is he? He's not called Caesar, is he? 
Ooh. No, because in that, that's a parallel. Uh, these movies probably don't mesh at all. But you know, in do you know the Marky Mark one, the Marky no. Mark Planet of the Apes? It's a no. Tim Burton one. Is that a no or a yes? That's a no. Oh, God, we can't even talk about that. It won't make any sense. But um, that seems to be like a like Mark, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. They go into <laughs> Mark Wahlberg. They go into like a parallel Doctor Man from Interstellar. They, he goes in like like through a wormhole or something. Goes into like a parallel timeline, and that which is set in an alternative future because it's like he thinks that he's on his Earth, but at the end he goes to Washington D.C. He's in, he crashes in Washington D.C. and he goes to the Lincoln Memorial. And instead of Lincoln being sat in a chair, there's a giant chimpanzee sat in a chair. And I'm pretty sure that when there's a military leader of the chimpanzees, the name of which I've forgotten, and he, I think, he makes some reference to being a descendant of Caesar. Caesar being like the first of the smart chimpanzees. Or I could be completely confused. But um, hmm. I might wouldn't... have seen this film, but I've forgotten it. Well... It wouldn't surprise Hel- Helena Bonham Carter is one of, is like the good female chimpanzee in it. Mm. Um, there's quite a, there's quite a bunch of fa- Charlton Heston is in it as a chimpanzee, which is quite funny. Um, well, not that funny, but any interesting <laughs> spin around. I mean, but uh, <clears throat> it wouldn't surprise me if in the next movie, because they're obviously going to do a, the final one, they will tie in some of the stuff from the Marky Mark Tim Burton movie, and um, and show how some of the apes from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes are taking on roles that we expect from the original Planet of the Apes films. Now, the original Planet of the Apes films, they're from the, is it the first one from the late 60s, 60s or 70s. They're all 60s and 70s movies, aren't they? Um, yeah, the original is 1968, I think. Right. So that's called Planet of the Apes, but then there's yeah. two sequels to it. And I... I'm not. I think one is called Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and it's about this. <laughs> it's about this surviving human subculture that that um, worships nuclear bombs, worships nuclear weapons, oh, yeah. and they're all like horribly sort of deformed due to radiation poisoning. And the film, I think, ends with them detonating a nuclear bomb. But then there's another one which I think is called Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So I'm talking like from a ni- 1970s one. And it starts off in 1991. So in that particular timeline, in that series of movies, the Planet of the Apes timeline starts in 1991 when a virus is brought from outer space and kills cats and dogs. People start keeping chimps, gorillas and orangutans, maybe bonobos too, I don't know, as like pets. And then they change them from pets to slaves. And then I think we're shown an American city, which may be San Francisco, certainly in California, uh, it's um, probably Los Angeles, though. The, there's, like, huge numbers of chimps, and uh, and there's one called Caesar who leads a revolt, and, and it ends with him, like, gunning down people in the street, like, flames all around him and stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what I remember. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking yeah. it up here. There's five films. Oh, goodness me. And there was a TV series also. Made between 1968 and 1973. So they really churned them out there, one a year. Um, I haven't seen any of them but the original. Well, you're missing out big time, clearly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I always felt like this this story was a bit... 
like a lot of things, it's one shot. I th- I don't really think it's helped by m- making prequels and sequels. I, the idea is already done. You know, it's a bit like the Matrix, right? No, you yeah, do but it you once see... and it's done, right? Oh, oh, it's Earth all along. You maniacs, you blew it up, <laughs> right? Film done, artistic. Um... <laughs> now you see, uh, that's not how it works because <laughs> there's this stuff called money that people like to make and keep, and. Um, if a film is a successful one, then you try and make another movie that rides on the back of the first one. It's called a sequel. Yeah, it's interesting, though, but I think that's much more common in science fiction things than it is in other things. Mm. There's lots of other sorts of films where you just can't really make another one. You can't make a prequel. You can't make a sequel. Or if you do, it, it would be ridiculous, and obviously so. Whereas so I think in make- science fiction... <laughs> What's that? So you just remake it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's what they do. They, you remake them. You Remake it with different actors. Yeah, remake it with different actors. Um, whereas in science fiction, I think because there's a, there's a great interest in the world-building aspect of it, you know, I think it's a big temptation to go and flesh out the world uh, because lots of people are really interested in, well, how does that work in this universe? And mm. How does that work? I don't think it really. I don't think it works particularly well often. Although it, you know, obviously it can. Um, there are some things where sequels and I can't think of any prequels that are any good, but sequels can frequently be good. Monsters University is that a prequel? <laughs> yeah, okay, it is. Yeah. Fair enough. That's <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Booyah. That was me high-fiving myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I wonder why that is. Uh, but I always, I just think that the Planet of the Apes fleshing out this whole story has not been great, not been a great ride for me. Hmm. And I think this, this particular one really, really was <laughs> abysmal. Abysmal. I wouldn't say it was as bad as Noah, but mm. it was probably because... It had more interesting scenes in it, I guess, but it was still pretty bad. Really bad. Okay. I'm going to give it... What are we out of five or ten stars? Ten out of ten. How many, yeah, what, how many stars, though? We're going for ten stars, aren't we? What? We're well, rating it out of ten. It's the we're scale it out of ten. previously has been at rating something out of ten. Okay, well, I'm going to give it Three? Three? Yeah. Okay, right. Well, I'm not that negative. I am going to give it six. But I, you, did, you did a good job. You did a good job of selling how crap it is. But <laughs> I... Well, ultimately, I, you can have all the ingredients of being a crap film. I could say yeah. all those things, and yet overall the effect was great. I didn't think it was in this yeah. case. I thought the effect was poor. But, you know, some things which have all the ingredients of terrible films can still be good films. Um, or at least entertaining. But I didn't feel that was the case in this this film. Right. Yeah, no, I... I mm, so, I... You know, so I think I quite liked it and I want to watch it again. But, oh but yes, but... <laughs> not with me, you won't. <laughs> no, not with me. Not with you, I mean. Sorry, not... Is it... It's... Look, it's even... Oh, it's within reach! Look at this! Endless invention, mm. spectacular scale, and poignant drama, if I may quote Total Film. 
Gary Oldman, uh, Andy Serkis. I just don't know what's going on here. <laughs> See, I think that's what makes me so down on it's, it, is the hey, fact that it's so loved by critics and people alike. It says that it's set in 2026, and humanity has been pushed to near extinction by a deadly virus. When a group of survivors desperate to find a new source of power travels into the woods near San Francisco, they discover a highly evolved community of intelligent apes led by Caesar. Andy Serkis. The two species form a fragile peace agreement, but dissension grows, and the groups find themselves hurtling toward an all-out war. Yeah. Hmm. So there we go. Okay, well, that's Let's so... Wrap it up. You, yeah, you got your money's worth there, Patrick. And, um, yeah, so we gave it an average of 4.5 out of 10. <clears throat> Now, timeline, still on the subject of popular tat, time, you mentioning timelines and stuff. Have you seen the trailer for Terminator Genocide? Oh, good God. No, Terminator I have not. Terminator uh, There's this new word, Genocide. So, right, it's... Ima- you've seen all the Terminator movies. Imagine the first Terminator movie. Mm. The really good one. Technoir. And that's the name of the nightclub. Where Sarah Connor goes um, to, yeah, whatever. Um, that timeline, but T800, future battered old Arnold Schwarzenegger, goes back in time with a young Sarah Connor to kill the Terminator from the 1984 movie, I think. Mm. But that's what the thing is, as I've said before, we, we, were, we were talking about this when we were discussing the Star Wars prequels, is. Um, the idea that you get from a movie about sorry about a movie from the trailer is erroneous because you're watching a mini movie which is the trailer itself you're not watching the yeah they've they've, they've but uh, i don't know and the lady who plays sarah connor is um uh, uh, uh oh god dragon woman from game of thrones what's her character called Di- Dinar- Daenerys? Daenerys, yeah Dinara Stormborn, it's her. Except, she, she, except she's not platinum blonde or silver blonde, whatever she is in Game of Thrones. Um, so yeah. And have you seen the new Star Wars trailer? Yeah. yeah. What do you think of the um, the lightsaber? I don't care. I, I don't care what you think of the lightsaber. Well, no, oh, well <laughs> what, I have thoughts. <laughs> what do you think about the lightsaber? I don't care. But I think it's ahead. double stupid. Incredibly stupid. That's, that's, that's a classic case of what can we do with the lightsaber to make it look more futury and more different? I know, let's have some light little side lightsabers growing off it. What's the yeah. point of that? <laughs> it's already a... Well, it's to look cool, isn't it? It's decoration. It's, it's completely stupid. So it's basically shaped like a sword. But except the... If I use the technical nomenclature of swords, the sidey-out sticky bits near the, yeah. <laughs> near the hand, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're now little lightsabers. So, but I would no say... dumber overall, than a double-ended lightsaber. Yeah, yeah. Except that was actually two lightsabers which you could take apart, and then... which is also stupid. Yeah, there's a reason um, people don't fight with two swords because they cut their own arms off. <laughs> That's really hard. No one could do it. <laughs> he could do it. <laughs> he was a Darth Maul. He was a Sith dude. He could do it. No problem. Well, he couldn't. Um, he died very early on, didn't he? Do you know who provided his? Hey, no, he didn't. No, he survived, and he got and he got given spider legs and came back to life. Did he? In the Star Wars Extended Universe, yeah, in uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Star Wars Lego and in also Attack of the Cl- <laughs> uh, no, uh, no uh, what's the TV series called? Clone the Clone Wars, the yeah, yeah, the Clone yeah, Wars. No, yes. Darth Maul survived. Great, and um, 
Um, do you know who did his voice? You know who did Darth Maul's voice? Nope. Peter Serafinowitz. I don't know who that is. Do you remember the discussion we were having about Shaun of the Dead? Nope. Oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Last we shall reveal ourselves to the Jedi. <laughs> At last, we shall have revenge. That's not actually the guy who plays Darth Maul, who is the same guy who plays Toad in the X-Men movies. I can't remember his name. Okay. Okay, well, I'm right. not going to see Terminator Gen Isis, I don't think. Well, I am. Are you? Yes. Yeah, I was sick. I, you know, even... I, it's done. Terminator's done. It's done after number two. Very much like Alien. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I don't want, I'm not going to say another word because it will start going somewhere else. Uh, is there anything else we need to talk before we wrap it up? Yes, right. Should we wrap it up, John? Yes. Right. You um, can right. Uh, I am uh, at johnconway.co where you'll find links to my Twitter and my Facebook. And I'm on Tumblr. You'll find links to my Tumblr there as well. Um, that's it for me. Mm-hmm. You know what uh, you should have covered in News from the World of John? You should yeah, have told it? us about the article you had about the follow-on from the Jurassic World thing at the Dave Hone Groinodian thing blog article. <laughs> the Sorry, Guardian. The Guardian. Um, um, too late. You're not talking I about talk it Didn't I talk about that last? Didn't we talk about that last time? Well, about your article on your log. Uh, oh, not well, it's the thing. Yeah, 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 whatever. whatever. Where can they find you? <laughs> Right, there's currently a blog called Tetrapod Zoology hosted at Scientific American, which you might like to read if you're interested in this podcast. If you're interested in this podcast, any of the stuff we talk about, you should go to tetzoo.com where you can listen to this podcast and others like it. Um, I currently tweet at... Take evasive action! At Tetzoo. Um, I have... I sell t-shirts at a Tetsu Redbubble shop, which is somewhere online and Tetsu Redbubble, I don't remember. Um, Check out the Tetsu wiki project wiki.tetzu.com it's coming along really nice really pleased with that um we should thank again mark the fish for the transcripts which you have so diligently put online somewhere (laughs) where are the transcripts on my hard drive Great. That's really handy. So there's at least three of them. And thank you to, I think I called him Jeff the Fish Ooh, at one stage. We, but should, it is Mark put, we, fish, should, right? we should put them on the Tetsu wiki. We should put them on Tetsu. You're damn right. Yeah. Get on to Cameron about that. Um, uh, expanded universe in the Tetsu universe. Mentions of our friends, um, Ethan Kosak, who runs Black Mud Puppy. Well, he is the Black Mud Puppy and runs the Tetsu comic, which is at comic.tetsu.com comic.tetsu.com and Ethan also has a Patreon project which you should check out uh, I think I've already mentioned my Patreon project there's a Tetsu Patreon and we should also mention John Tomeo and Alberto Claw who do the Tetsubods is it called Tetsu Time? yeah Tetsu, Tetsu Time, time. Yeah. which uh, they've been real slackers lately they haven't done another one it's almost as if they're busy with something else like their lives are educational or something but um, <laughs> um, so I think that brings us to the end. We hope you enjoyed listening. And don't forget to edit out those swears. Um, Yeah. Yeah. All right. Also, donate to the podcast and uh, catch your questions in. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to to people who support us and um, send us questions and stuff. You'll hear from us again next time. Next time.